It's just so very, very thankful to have spent time with you all. And um, I'm, I, I was quite moved listening to the praise. I'm so thankful to, for the praise team and the way that they serve. And just all of it has been such a, a blessing for me as I spent time with you all. And again, it reminds me so much of my own church. I mean, that's, that's part of it that makes it so special. Um, I have uh, the difficult task task of trying to bring this all home for us. Uh, what's next? How do we move forward from here? Uh, perhaps to give some words um, to help you articulate and some thoughts that would help you formulate how you move forward in the very practical and more difficult work of applying race in the gospel. There's a story of a school in Los Angeles where third grade teachers trying to teach idioms. It's a predominantly uh, Latinx school and uh, a teacher's talking about idioms like, the early bird gets the worm. What does that mean? And a young Latino boy raises his hand, second grader, he says, I know, I know. It means you stay in bed as long as you can, pull the covers up and never ever get up. And teacher says, no, that's not what it means. No, it's the opposite actually. Why would you say that? And the young uh, boy says, because if you go out early, the bird will eat you. Now, a lot can be revealed in this story. Do we read and interpret everything from the dominant narrative, from the triumphal experience, or do you identify with the non-dominant, the victim? Do I identify with the worm? And this young man was right. You can have multiple perspectives on any one given incident or event. And it's interesting how we think about diversity or diversifying all for gospel purposes, which is wonderful, but how we understand it will matter. Today's scripture comes from the book of Luke, chapter 6, verses 43 through 45. You can see it on the screen, and it's also written in your uh, program bulletin. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. A good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. I love this um, imagery and the, and the understanding of trees and fruits, or I like to say roots and fruits, roots and fruits. And there's a distinction, I think, that we have to recognize that no fruit ever emerges without roots. We have to think about the roots. We have to think about the roots. I lived in Cambodia for three years. I'm looking forward to an opportunity to talk to some of the folks who went to Cambodia. Um, hopefully, we're going to have some time tomorrow uh, talk about missions and all these things. But I lived there from 2010 to 2013. Very lush, tropical place. And um, everything grows well. Because it rains like 300 days out of the year. Everything grows well. Except, except Alex's house. We have this apple tree. And um, it just never bore any fruit. And uh, our neighbors would say stuff, and my wife would tease me. And so one day, I went out, and I got a bunch of apples, and I got scotch tape, and I started taping the apples to the tree. 
From a distance, from a distance, all the neighbors said, oh, that's beautiful. This is so nice. Alex, that's beautiful. You got some beautiful apples. It's not even apple season. How did you do that, right? These beautiful apples that grew. From a distance, it looked really good. But what happens to those apples after a few days? After a few weeks, what happens? They shrivel up and die, right? Because it's not tied to the life-giving roots that feed the fruit. It looks good from a distance, but if it's not tied to the roots of the tree that give the nutrients and everything else, the system that makes this work, they will shrivel up and die. And part of the argument that I like to make when we talk about uh, programs or diversifying and being intentional about being different uh, groups and multi-ethnic and multicultural, oftentimes it's nothing more than a form of apple dangling. We like the idea of doing something, so we try it, but after a while, the programs fail, and what do we usually do? We blame the apples, right? This is our pr a lot of things that we do, not much different than apple dangling. We, we're driven by certain things, threats, that people say, oh, you're not diverse enough, so you better get diverse. Otherwise, we're going to keep hammering you, okay? Or incentives, right? I mean, this is true in the work world. Well, they say, we'll incentivize this for you. We'll throw money at this so we can get more black, brown, and Asians. Well, not Asians anymore, but black, brown students to go to certain universities and colleges. Um, or guilt. Guilt is a powerful motivator, especially in the church. But oftentimes, we think about these things, and they don't last because it's not tied to the roots. So we got to think about this. Uh, I, I've covered a lot of this already, so I think as I go through it, um, just as a quick recap of things that we've already covered, uh, when we talk about unity in the church, I think it's well understood. It's in the gospel that we want unity. Not uniformity, but unity. unity. That means it's not assimilationist. We're not all meant to be from the same dominant group. We are all reeling from the past effects of the evangelical church, broadly stated, I talked a little bit about the roots of uh, chattel slavery and capitalism sort of disguised under uh, uh, Christian work. Uh, that's problematic for us. Uh, we talk about evangelism and salvation, the spirituality of the church, um, and not talk enough about racial distinctions. A lot of things we've been talking about is some individual issues that are tied to systemic issues and how the church has been complicit in its silence. I talked about normativity and colorblind ideology and how much of our reflections as we think about Christianity today is a Western European individualistic white theology and normativity. That's just part of the culture. That's why one church gets called a black church, an Asian church, or a regular church. And so we need to continue to wrestle with this and hopefully we're free to use these words as we talk. Uh, racial reconciliation, largely black and white, Asian, Asian Americans have a role. You, and by and large, Asian American church has a role to play, not just in your church, but in the, in the grander scheme of the universal church and in our denomination, a very, very important role to play as we talk about race, as we talk about theology. I was talking to Jay earlier um, about how important a church like this is because the people that you work with, very well-educated, very um, successful and jaded people 
who have certain understandings of the, the dangers of Christianity, and they don't want to hear the gospel because they know how it's tied to empire and all this. They're very critical thinkers, right? And Jay was saying, this is probably the best church for them to hear the gospel because it's not a white normative Eurocentric theology. It's the Bible. It's the gospel. And that would shock your coworkers in ways that another church probably could not. So, I mean, that's a beautiful reminder of how God is already using your church here. We are leading in the discussion of racial reconciliation. Okay. Uh, so, when we talk about apple dangling and we talk about the failures of roots and fruits, oftentimes when something goes wrong, right, there's somebody in the, it, it's not a church necessarily, but this happens a lot in Christian higher education or education in general or in work world and whatever, something goes wrong. There's a critical incident that's racial. And oftentimes the president will come out and say these things. I am outraged and disappointed. These, uh, the actions of a few do not reflect or do not represent the values and mission of our institution. Oh, really? It's interesting, right? I mean, if I wanted to do some consulting, dirty consulting, I would just copy and paste and say, this is what you need to say. Here's what you need to say. This will get you out. Every uh, president who goes and says, this is not our institution, it's not what we're about. It'd be nice if once, if a leader were simply to say, rather than the bad apple theory, right? The actions of a few don't represent our church's missions and values. A few bad apples is what happened. Really, the reality is, what about the branches? What about the grass? What about the ecosystem, the soil, everything that's tied into it that fed and bore the fruit? You can't claim bad fruit. You have to recognize the system. And once it'd be nice if a leader of an organization were to say, yeah, this came from us. This is the way we raised them. This is the way we taught them, uh, especially with issues of uh, race and racism. A lot of people grow up without any sort of uh, personal knowledge or experience of race, and their education is its remedial. Really, it's just remedial. And they had no idea that these were issues that were going on in different communities. And so it is systemic. You can't simply put it on the individuals. Okay. Now, I titled this final talk, Now Hold On, and it has a double meaning, but I'll go with the first part. And hopefully this, as we move into um, a greater sense of awareness and empowerment for you all, you'll hear this, and I get this a lot. This is a list that's compiled over several years where people will hear me talk for a day or two or whatnot, and they come back and invariably they'll say, now hold on, Alex, now hold on. And they pose these questions. And so we had a Q&A earlier, and that was great, but uh, I want to share some of these things. That someone says, look, I know something happened, but I didn't mean it. I didn't mean to do that. I didn't mean to say it that way. You took it the wrong way, but I didn't mean it. Have you ever heard that one before, right? Um, some scholars refer to this as the, uh, the challenge of the intent versus impact, right? Intent versus impact. I travel a lot. I fly a lot. And so, you know, I get on the plane early, which is nice because you're a frequent flyer. But then somebody comes in and they always do the overhead and it falls on my head or they step on my foot or whatever it is. And there's always some sort of drama uh, with... Uh, boarding and exiting. And when that happens, the person says, oh, sorry, I didn't mean it, right? 
Well, it doesn't matter what you meant to do. I'm sure you didn't mean it. It could be unintentional. But the reality is my foot hurts or my head is bleeding because your overhead thing was too heavy and you didn't push it in or whatever the issue is. I don't question your intent. I want us to focus on the impact. So someone says, are you okay? Is your foot okay? Is your head okay? Whatever. We're dealing with the impact, not the intent. The other challenge is when we say, I didn't mean it, the focus is all on you, on, on them, right? Because it's not how I feel about what happened. It's all about what you meant. And as long as you didn't mean anything by it, I shouldn't be offended. But that's not how it works. That doesn't work practically in any other situation. So when you hear someone say, I didn't mean to say something, when you call somebody on something and they say, I didn't mean it, you have an opportunity to go a little bit deeper. Not just intent, but impact. But also, someday it also has to be intent. At someday you have to start recognizing that, yeah, you didn't get it the first time, you didn't get it the second time, and it's been hurting and it's been impactful, but at some point you've, better, you've got to start understanding it. Someday it has to start being impact, in, intent. Okay, that's, what's similar is you say, that's not who I am. As if we're trying to evaluate the totality of a person. That a person says, I am not racist. Jay Smooth has a great little five-minute viral video, if you've seen it, where he gives the example of someone who steals my wallet. My goal is not to determine whether that person in his heart of hearts has thievery in his heart. It's not who he is. I'm trying to get my wallet back. Right? So you have to address the issue, not have this a debate about the quality of a person. Right? So a person, good, bad, indifferent, whatever, it's the actions that we want to address, not questioning the totality of a person. Okay. People say you're being too sensitive. There's this great Jackson Katz um, talk on, he, he leads military men and, and sports, very, very uh, uh, masculine sort of uh, fields. Um, and having these conversations about um, the role of women and violence toward women and all these other things. And someone said, uh, yeah, you do sensitivity training with these guys. And he said, no, it's not sensitivity training. It's leadership training. Because if something is going wrong in your community and you have to fix it, you need to address it, that's a leader. That's not being sensitive. right? So it's a change in the way we think about words. We have to be proactive. We have to be leaders in these discussions, not simply uh, being sensitive. Another popular one, all these types of talks that I give, and we say, oh, that's reverse racism. Now, because look at the majority of people. If we base this purely on numbers, right, that's one thing. It really has to do with power. I talked about the 2042, you know, the dilemma or the myth that there's going to be equality simply by, by 2042 or simply because there's a room full of one type of person who hasn't been represented before. You have to think about power mm, for what it's worth. You look at the mega churches across the United States. You look at presidents of Christian colleges or universities that are secular or companies, whatever it is, the people in charge, boardrooms, presidents, etc., all the executives, it's still from one dominant group. Even if you have a broad representation of everybody else. So it's about power when we talk about racism. That's the same thing as majority-minority, right? The argument of the majority-minority. You don't, there's no such thing because it's about power, not about just numbers. Okay. And after all that, someone says, oh, okay, I get it. Now I have guilt, right? Well, I said earlier, guilt is a powerful motivator, but it's not long-lasting. I don't want you to be driven. I don't want people to be driven by guilt and the things that they do. 
right? We know what it feels like, the difference between empathy and pity, don't we? We know the difference. We know when we're being pitied or we're being tolerated simply because they feel guilty, right? There is a distinction that we have to make. And especially if, as God's people, we have to be very intentional about being motivated by the gospel to do the things that we do. It's not going to be guilt-driven. I talked about colorblind ideology already when you say you don't see color. Uh, another common one, people say, you keep talking about the past. You mentioned slavery and all these other examples, the internment. And, you know, why do you keep talking about the past? The reality is, friends, we always talk about the history. But I think it's human nature for us to think about history when it's benefiting us. We talk about good things. Thanksgiving. We still talk about Thanksgiving, don't we? I mean, you feel bad for the British. Does anyone feel bad for the British? We're still bringing up how we left the, the original Brexit, and we came to uh, the United States, and like, what? No, we don't, that's not why we do it. Or, you know, we do this for Fourth of July, right? We make fun of uh, all the British. Is that why we're doing all the fireworks and all this stuff? No, of course not. We remember things. I don't need to tell this group about 9-11. You remember. You remember things. So it's things of the past that we remember. But if it's unpleasant to you, then you don't want to talk about it. Then we say, oh, why do we keep talking about slavery and all the things in the past? When someone says, can't we all just be the same, hopefully you've picked up enough of this to say, by the same you mean I need to be assimilated into a dominant narrative. That's what you mean by the same. And the running joke for me is someone says, oh, I wish, Alex, I'm glad you go to a Korean church, but, you know, uh, I wish we were all the same. And I say, well, that's great. When are you going to learn Korean? When are you going to come to my church? That'd be great. I'd love for us to all be the same. What they meant is I need to go to their church. They didn't mean they're going to come to mine. Oh, Alex, if you'd be less angry, people could hear you better. This is like sharing the gospel. Um, it's offensive. It's not you who's offensive. It's the content. If you've never heard it before, it's offensive. When I first became a Christian, uh, I struggled. I resisted in college because someone kept saying, I'm going to hell. You know, I deserve hell, that I'm, I'm not a good person, that I'm God's enemy. And I said, I'm not a bad person. Why would you keep saying that? Right? What did I ever do? Well, I didn't do anything. I didn't, like, uh, murder anybody and all that. I think I'm a good person. And so it was offensive when someone said that I couldn't save myself, that I was born into sin. And it was just as offensive later when someone would talk about the second Adam that I came to faith through, right, that I couldn't save myself. It was, it was one of those things that I, I, I was trying to understand. Um, but it was, I was just angry. I was angry because it was the content and not the delivery. So when you have these conversations, someone says, now hold on, you keep talking about this. I mean, I just Don't get angry. A missionary once said this, and I loved it. Um, you can count the number of seeds in an apple, but you can never count the number of apples in a seed. Isn't that profound? If your season of talking with somebody is seed planting season, do not expect any fruit. So these kinds of conversations or sharing the gospel or any other types of important conversations that you have, there's no need for you to get angry. Your job is just to share, plant seeds, and hopefully in time and with prayer, with cultivation, you'll see some fruit. Okay, now hold on. Other challenges. Why do you keep bringing up something that happened so long ago? I think I said that one already. Um, we've come so far in society. We've made so much progress. 
Why, isn't that something positive to think about? This is where I rely heavily on comedians who gave examples like, that's like saying you're very sick and you're in an ambulance and you're going through traffic and you're like, I'm not gonna make it. And the ambulance driver says, but we made so much progress, we're halfway there. Shouldn't we celebrate how far we've come? Or Ta-Nehisi Coates says, if somebody stabs you in the back with a 12-inch blade and pulls it out halfway, six inches, do we celebrate the progress that was made? And I'm sorry, another uh, dark analogy. This is Hanahasi Coates, so it makes sense. You know, if, you, if you're in a spousal relationship and there's abuse, and the day finally comes where uh, the spouse stops uh, uh, physically assaulting the other spouse, right? Is that progress, the day that it stops? Is that you start to celebrate? It's a different concept, isn't it? We have more work to do, so we have to think different about certain things where people are quick to be positive and quick to want to just have it move forward. It is a slow process. Reminding people of the problems. You keep talking about the problems. The more you talk about these problems, the more they become a problem. Like race and racism, why do you keep talking about it? Is that true? If we stop talking about world hunger, does hunger go away? If we stop talking about rain, will the rain go away? No, these are things that happen and we need to start addressing them. All right. I snuck in a secret passage, an extra one for you all. This is a, a, a verse for me and for others who do this work, very important. It's the prophet Micah, a very famous passage a lot of people like to use when we talk about justice work. But he has told you, O oh man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. And my confession, my final confession to you all, my friends, is I misunderstood this passage for the longest time. I focused a lot on justice, but I did so with no kindness. Or sometimes when I'm wrong, I love to focus on the kindness and the mercy, but I don't want the justice. But you, can know, you cannot have justice without mercy. You cannot have mercy without justice. And in all things, you have to have humility. So they're supposed to be tripled together when we talk. So as you move forward, as you hold on to the work of racial reconciliation and healing and talking about race in the church, this is a verse to remember that we're quick to be judging and we're quick to want judgment and we want justice, but we're not merciful or we're not kind and we're not humble and we need all of that. I'm going to change my tenor now. It's not now hold on as a critique or a challenge. This is my hope for you, my prayer for you, for perseverance. As you have conversations beyond this retreat, how can you hold on? Hold on to one another and hold on to the gospel. Well, it starts with recognizing your own privilege. We have many forms of privilege here. I know we talked about race and many of you may have had racialized trauma and experiences, but let me start with this. How did you all get in here? Did you think much about that? You just walked in, right? Were you looking for a ramp? Was there an elevator access that you needed to get in, right? I mean, we're all able-bodied. There's a form of privilege right there that we never think about. You're like, ah, oh, I never really thought about that. Part of the definition of privilege is not having to think about these things. Some people were born with it. Some people were serving our country, and then they were injured. I mean, there's many different forms of it. That's just physical disability. Then we've got emotional disabilities and other mental health issues that are invisible, but very traumatic at the same time. 
uh, we make assumptions. So we have privileges. So when we have these privileges, we use these privileges. We can use these privileges. I shared in our, our, our second secret Q&A uh, session, FDR, who was um, um, placed in a wheelchair as he was president, right? Uh, before that time, there was no wheelchair access or no plans for how to get around in a wheelchair. It took a person in a position of power and privilege to recognize what the need was, and he made changes. And that's what we're talking about. In a very similar way, when you have privileges, you can recognize and argue for, or if you don't see it, then you need to invite other people in to help you see your blind spots. So hold on to that. And remember, you can use your privilege and you can speak for yourself. Probably the most dangerous things to do in, in privilege is we're so busy trying to convince other people that you're down, you're hip, you're, you're woke, you understand it. Uh, we're so busy trying to convince other people that you get them, but you really just need to speak for yourself. And you need to speak with your people. So it doesn't do me any good for me to talk to my black friends and lament with them about how bad policing is and how sad it is that young black men and boys are dying. I need to talk about this with my own people to say this doesn't happen to my 15-year-old or my 13-year-old. What would it be like if it did? I can't even imagine what the, the fear I'd have to let my boys go outside. And I'm trying to convince my people of this. I don't need to convince black people of this. That's their lived experience. So we have to talk to our own people. We need to have a deeper sense of empathy and then bring it back to our own communities and have these conversations. Advocacy, remember, has many forms. Part of that is reading. You should read. And if there are other people who are more intellectually minded, then read with them and say, hey, you want to discuss this book together? And then you can have conversations. It's not always going out and um, protesting. That's certainly an option. That's something that you can do. But you never want to go out not sure exactly why you're protesting and you're still protesting. There's a lot uh, that you can be. So multiple levels of advocacy and gospel reconciliation work that you can do. Holding on also means having grace and embracing grace. We're all a work in progress. I have so much growing to do. I have so much more learning to do, and I do this work. And the more I do this work, the more I recognize I don't know. So being a work in progress is important. I hope this will liberate you in the work that you do. Stop being surprised. You know, this common thing people say, oh, it's 2019. It's what, what year it is. As if somehow the sins of the world sort of mature over time. That doesn't happen. That's, just, that's not how it works. Um, I hold to the doctrine of uh, total depravity. The world is just as bad as it was in the beginning. It'll, it may get worse. There's no improvement. So stop being surprised when things happen. It actually safeguards and protects me. And that nothing surprises me anymore. The other one is, for those of you who do this work, educate, don't obliterate. It feels good, though, I'll be honest. I love putting people in their place. I can shut them down, drop the mic, I could do all these things, burn, all these, but you know the problem? They never want to have these conversations again. And I need them to have these conversations. I need to keep, I need to keep a community, I need to keep communication with them. So for you all, as painful as it is, 
Remember, you're, you're, you want to try to educate and not simply obliterate them and win an argument because that doesn't, that, that, you'll win the argument and you'll lose the friendship. And the final thought is to hold on to multiple realities. Um, one of the key uh, the things that are hard to embrace is that if we have friends who we've developed good relationships with, that we love and we have deep affection with, can they still not get some things? Do they have to understand everything about your issues in order for you to be close friends? I'd like to think that we can hold on to multiple realities. I love the police. I love that they exist to, put, to protect and serve. I can hold on to that reality and at the same time say, it is a system that is broken, that is in need of repair and in need of reform. Saying one doesn't negate the other. Holding on to multiple realities is going to be important. Can you have people who you love, who you respect, who are preachers, who say some really strange, racist or sexist, homophobic things? Lord, hear my prayer. That's my burden right now. How do I find that? Got to hold on. Got to hold on. Okay. Well, this is my shameless plug. I mentioned some of these already as we wrap up. If you want to do more reading, All Our Welcome is a, uh, a neat little book that was done, written by uh, um, chapter authors that are all chapter authors of color, um, theologically aligned, but they're all um, authors of color, black, brown, Asian, and that's a fun book. I gave my uh, that reference earlier about the... Um, the music that was in this, this particular book, but um, that's a fun book to read. And these are just, I don't want you to buy them because they're, they're more academic, but I just wanted to share with you some of the ideas where I uh, could use your prayer because I, most of my work as an academic, I write on uh, white dominance and privilege. And um, I had shared this earlier. The Lord knows how to sanctify me and my people-pleasing idolatries by having me talk about something that is wildly popular with some white people talking about white dominance and privilege. This is what I do. This may not be what you do, but you have to find your space. Um, white Out was the first book. White Jesus was actually a follow-up because a lot of Christians were saying, yeah, that's true for the world, but the church doesn't do this. And so this was a response to that. And I have another one coming out. But most of you may not end up writing books on white privilege and all of these things, but you may end up addressing issues in your own community, in your own spheres. And I think nothing is more important than you addressing this in your own groups. And so that's my prayer for you. As we end here, as you go about the rest of your lives at Exilic, we've opened up the conversation now. Um, and it's an opportunity for you all to continue to have these conversations. Thank you so very, very much for your kind attention, your interaction with me. It's been such a blessing, and I remember you, and I'll be praying for you, but let me pray for us now. So let me close with a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for your goodness and your grace to us. We're so overwhelmed by your generosity, your kindness, and your love for us. Thank you for an opportunity to get through this uh, retreat this weekend, having fellowship, building friendships, and talking about things that are important that you care about, that you know about, that we have not had these conversations. And we're so thankful, Lord, that you've opened the doors to these things. And now, Lord, I pray for the leaders, for the pastoral staff, for members, that we would embrace and be reminded 
this is something you care about and we could talk openly about. I pray for wisdom beyond our collective years that we would be able to reconcile and work through these issues prayerfully, lovingly, and in community. Thank you, Lord, for this time. We pray all these things with much thanksgiving and praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Before, uh, yes. I was going to ask you to clap, but you just did it, so you just stole my thunder. But uh, before we, we broke for a small group and dinner, I just, we just wanted to say how much we appreciate you for this weekend, Alex. And uh, actually, the fun continues tomorrow morning as well back in the city. So can we give it up for him one more time? Um, I'm going to invite up Jeannie before we break because it's going to get really chaotic. And so she'll give you some final instructions before uh, we break for small group and dinner. Okay, um, in the back, if you could do me a favor um, between now and uh, dinner, if you could take off your name tag from your lanyard and just drop both things off. There's like a pop chips box in the back that says name tags. And then if you still have your room keys, um, you can also drop it off in the box next to that. Um, so after small, let's see, it's six o'clock. Um, dinner's at 7, between 7 to 8, and uh, we do need to be out of Alexander Ballroom by 8. And so um, what's going to happen is um, after small group, just go straight to dinner and then bring your bags to Carnahan by 8 o'clock. We'll have five lines for the shuttles. We'll have four of our own vans, and then we'll use the hotel shuttle as well to go back to Princeton Junction. Um, so we'll have uh, 